Well, let me welcome you all to the uh, inaugural Brown Bag Lunch for the spring semester here at the Kennedy School. I'm Alex Jones. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center, and it's my great pleasure to uh, inaugurate this this speaker series. We're going to have some terrific people this semester, and I hope many of you will come a lot. Uh, today, we are kicking it off with. Uh, uh, the topic of the moment, certainly, which is uh, politics, especially the presidential version. And uh, Alex, you know, Alexis um, Simondinger has, has been a, a political correspondent for how many, how many years? Long time. <laughs> <laughs> a long time. Long time. She's worked for a lot of terrific places. Right now she uh, does her thing at uh, realclearpolitics.com, uh, which is one of those one of those uh, websites that is, you know, grown up in a political climate of high partisanship and has been a very uh, uh, significant player now for an awful lot of uh, political junkies. Uh, she is one of the people who is very highly regarded uh, in this area and has made a specialty of covering the White House and Barack Obama in particular. Her, uh, her piece today, as a matter of fact, is on Google Plus, big question for Obama is weeded out. Uh, a bad pun has to do with marijuana. Is uh, that you? Our, our headline writer had fun. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like spilled milk, I think. But that notwithstanding, um, she is going to be talking today about uh, Obama's latest lessons in policy, politics, and polarization. I just had the pleasure of chatting with her about the uh, about the campaign season and what she sees and uh, she will speak and then we will have a brief conversation and we'll open up to all of you. So Alexis, welcome. Great. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to see all of you. I see a familiar face. And congratulations you. on your uh, and you've got a terrific lineup. Uh, some people I know and love who are gonna be here later on this spring. So you all are going to have some really great insights coming your way in the next few weeks. Great lineup, thanks to Evie and all the people putting together. So uh, let me ask you, I know I'm just going to talk 15 minutes, and then we're going to have a, uh, what they call in Washington a free and frank exchange. And uh, so let me ask, how many people had a chance to watch any of the State of the Union address? You lied. No. <laughs> How many people watched it all the way through? Wow. Great. Super. So if I talk a little bit about the speech, there's enough people here who had a chance to watch a lot of it to, to think through some of the ideas that I wanted to chew on today. Um, did anybody get a chance to also watch when President Obama did an interview with Diane Sawyer right after the State of the Union address? Uh, he was asked by her through a Yahoo question about whether he had any second thoughts about the beginning of his administration. And this was right after the State of the Union address. Obviously, we know the president is sailing into stiff wind here with the economy and trying to get reelected. And he uh, told Diane this answer to the question, which was about whether he, uh, if there was something he learned about himself and wished he had done differently in the first three years. And I want you to tell me what is the sentence in this paragraph that you expect to see in an attack ad at some point in this election cycle. <laughs> Here was his quote. 
I second guess constantly, Obama said. I make a mistake, you know, every hour, every day. There's always things that you're learning in the job, and I have no doubt that I'm a better president now than the day I took office, just because you get more experience. But when you look at the broad outlines of what we did, had it not been for the steps we took, our economy would be profoundly weaker than we are right now. What's the sentence that you imagine will be in the Every hour. Yeah. All right. So what I'm interested in talking about is, just briefly here, is watching President Obama learning, if you can imagine, learning still in this year. You know, here he is making his third state of the union, still learning. And I covered eight years of Bill Clinton, I covered seven years of George W. Bush, and I am fascinated when I uh, started covering President Obama full-time in May, and beforehand I was covering his agenda in the Senate, uh, to watch someone really figuring out and trying to change. I would say that I find President Obama somewhat of a slow learner. Uh, how much executive experience did President Obama have before he came to the Oval Office? Zero. How much did Vice President Obama, uh, Biden have? Zero. And I think you can tell, and President Obama has been somewhat candid about the things that he said that he was learning, things that he needed to change, especially after the midterm elections going into 2011. So I uh, made a list of things that he talked about himself as lessons learned. You just heard him after the State of the Union talking about mistakes every minute, every day. And he's been talking since December of 2010 about lessons that he thought he needed to learn. Democrats in the Senate have always so helpfully and constructively been suggesting to him uh, every week things that he needed to work on, same in the, in the House, things that he needed to work on. And they kind of fall to me into four categories. And let me just lay them out, we can talk about them. Uh, and interject, jump in at any time. But the four categories to me, things that he's talked about and he's, you can watch him still working on, and the State of the Union address was a, a really great example of, of where he's still working things out. One of the categories, he did a complete 360 reversal. So here are the categories. What's the thing we know that President Obama thought that he was oh so great at after the election when he came into the Oval Office? What's the skill we think of as communication? He was shocked, really, to discover that communicating as a candidate is a lot different than communicating in governance. And he is still learning that lesson, and he talks about that somewhat candidly. That uh, trying to communicate as the president in leader of the government, head of state, commander-in-chief, a lot different than selling yourself. We know we wrote two best-selling books. He's very good at conveying and communicating things that uh, relate to Barack Obama. So one of the things that he heard about really early on uh, after the midterms was, Mr. President, you need to really mix it up because your communication is really mediocre. This is members of his own party telling him this. And he said, you're right, you're right, you're right, I need to fix this. Uh, communication is governance, governance, I need to work on this. Uh, and, I, and their suggestion was he has many levers of power as president that the legislative branch doesn't have and showcase those things. Make the people understand uh, American electorate better, what it is that you're doing, why it is that you're doing it, what's the narrative thread that runs through your agenda. If you think your policies are so good, you know, tell us and use those things. Be the healer in chief, the president of all the people. Use your bully pulpit. Uh, 
showcase and be the explainer in chief. Use your power as commander in chief. Does anybody remember uh, in December of 2010 when Bill Clinton came to the White House right after the midterms and came to offer some constructive suggestions to Barack Obama about his time dealing with divided government? And the president, President Obama, had a holiday party he had to get to, and he left Bill Clinton yeah. Yeah. at the podium. And we all noticed that Bill Clinton looked really comfortable at the podium in the briefing room and didn't leave, didn't seem too anxious to leave, and did a whole news conference and kept talking and talking and talking. Well, one of the things that he had suggested was that President Obama had, in Clinton's mind, achieved a lot in his first two years and had forgotten to keep uh, repeating, repeating, and repeating. You know, here's what we did for you, here's why it's good for you, and here's how it all fits together. And Clinton was very complimentary, but he was sort of suggesting that there were, were things that, that the President could work on to convey that more. So a lot of the challenges that I think the President has been thinking about, and this is very common for Presidents, when they have start to see problems in their polls, we know what the poll numbers are, we know what right track, wrong track is, the, the, the level of uh, approval of uh, the direction of the country. They start to think they have communications problems, and often they do. Often those communications problems are, are rooted in policy problems and then, of course, political problems. So that's lesson number one. Communicate better. Do it with more variety. And you can see, give me an example. Give me an example from the State of the Union address where any of you detected something about the communication that seemed to you to be getting into uh, territory that the president thinks is making a change. What was an example of anything from the speech? There's no right or wrong answer. It's just any kind of example of communications terrain. I don't, I don't quite follow. You mean just the technique? The, the technique of communicating, how he was doing it. Was, was there anything different about this State of the Union uh, in terms of communication that seemed to leap out at anybody? Yeah, Michigan. Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> more, more disjointed, like a bunch of separate little things. And also, he made the joke about crying over spilled milk, which yes, it was not like the other, the weighty sort of. Yeah. yeah, so it jumped around a lot. Anybody else? Like Gene yeah. Sperling wrote the speech. Oh, do you know Gene? No. Oh, very funny. We should talk later. <laughs> yes. Isn't there some kind of us, us and them rhetoric in there with, um, sort of, you know, we're not going to keep. We're going to work together, but if we can't work together, we're going to do it ourselves. Yes, exactly. He had a, a mixed message of uh, let's work together. Yeah. You know, you and Congress, you know, State of the Union is I challenge Congress. Usually, traditionally, I challenge Congress. Let's work together. In a political year, it starts to sound a lot more like a mix of the old style and then politics, which he's definitely blended together. So <coughs> a more confrontation, collaboration and confrontation coming together. Anybody else on their hand? Yeah. I think he hit the right word. When he used the word fair. Fair. He didn't get into class warfare or some them, but he said it's not fair. And I think that's going to be a theme in this campaign. Absolutely. That is a central theme of his campaign. And uh, very much at the uh, heart of what he was trying to say. America built to last. Do you remember hearing that phrase, America built to last? Does anybody remember where that phrase came from? The New York Times said it came from Ford. It actually came from Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan used that phrase in an economic address in 1982 to the nation during high um, inflation. And uh, the Ford motto was um, engineered to last. So the two things came together nicely in, a, you know, in the speechwriter's minds in the White House. Those two things came together. 
he also several times said, if Congress will bring me this bill, I'll sign it immediately. Or, or, I mean, it was like putting the, the onus, the on, onus them. on them. The onus was on them. Like, I'm working so hard, and, and we're working away, and if Congress, now, it makes a lot of sense in some ways to be combating Congress, but Congress, of course, is not going to be on the ballot. But it also makes sense because what is Congress's job approval? <laughs> it's like, you know, we're, let's Low face it, we're the media, right. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, absolutely, down there in the basement. So, you know, 83% of the public says it disapproves of what Congress is doing. And not just this Congress, but the institution of Congress. So when President Obama gets up in the morning and does his exercises and is on this treadmaster or whatever, he can certainly say to himself, well, 40 Three to forty-six percent is not that bad in comparison. I mean, you know, this is the way you take hope as a as a <laughs> embattled president. The second thing that he said that he would really work on much better, and and the speech was certainly evidence of this. All of 2011, I think, was evidence of this. Is he said that healthcare was a good idea, but we we went about it in such a long, prolonged way that we lost our focus on jobs in the economy. So he said, my lesson was I should have been focused, not that I should have changed my policy direction or what we were doing. He didn't want to blame Congress, although he's sort of rolling his eyes about the 18 months it took in Congress to get health care through, but that he made a mistake in looking like he was preoccupied with something that didn't uh, enamor all of the electorate. And so he said, I'm going to focus like a laser beam on jobs in the economy. And we certainly have seen that, lesson learned on that. And so everything that I've been covering in the last few months has been focused around the economy, and in particular the economy, not in 50 states, but in a small tribe of, of swing states. So he keeps returning to these uh, true up-for-grab states and finding ways to illustrate something about what he is making an effort to do in government to improve the economy. So that was number two, focus on what people care about. Number three is the interesting one. He said his lesson after the midterms was that he had been misunderstood as a very traditional tax and spend liberal, and he should have been uh, explaining himself better as a much more centrist sort of Democrat who can work across the aisle and get things done. You watched he hired Bill Daley to be his chief of staff. His uh, agenda going into 2011 was to, to focus on uh, organizing his uh, uh, legislative agenda to getting support from Republicans. And then what happened? What happened last year? The debt ceiling. It was like a bomb that went off, and everybody ended up injured on the battlefield after that. And uh, members of his own party have been trying to tell him for months Mr. President, they aren't going to work with you. Republicans are not going to meet you halfway. They're not going to change their mind on taxes. The, the debt ceiling fight was engineered by them as a showdown to, to make you uh, look and, and appear weaker or pinned down in Washington. And his pollsters and his team came to him and said, Mr. President, independent voters think you're a nice guy and you're ineffectual. You can't get anything done, that you look weak. And that woke the President up. He not only became much more persuaded after his experience dealing with Eric Cantor and John Boehner for quality hours together spent in the, in the West Wing, but he became more persuaded that um, after the debt ceiling, his legislative agenda was pretty much on ice. 
and it was important. He had to change something. He had to mix it up. It was not working what he was trying to do. He was not going to be successful. And out of that experience came something, uh, a new bumper sticker for the next lesson, which was, if you can't legislate, that's not the end of the presidency. Uh, legislation is a big part of it. But he learned from Bill Clinton, who did this himself after divided government, that when Republicans are resisting you in Washington, use all the levers of power and use your executive power. And out of that came this bumper sticker call. Yes, we can. We can't wait. We can't wait, right? So we keep hearing, we heard about that a lot in the speech. He started doing that, the executive actions in 2011. They had not pulled it together into some sort of program until after the debt ceiling fight. And then he decided, look, I, I have to look like I have some sort of clout uh, domestically. And out of it came this idea of using executive orders, uh, his veto authority, uh, using the executive branch as kind of a model. He suddenly discovered there was an executive branch. He started visiting the departments and talking about the federal workers. You rem may remember he'd gone into 2011, proud that he had frozen their pay and that, they, that we were going to have uh, you know, hiring freezes and downsized government. And then he discovered that he could do events at the executive department showcasing how valuable they were, that he was managing a government that was effective, made people's lives better. And all of those themes, I think, came out in this State of the Union address. It was really a kind of a, an address, a muddle in a way, you know, the, the checklist of things. But it certainly was supposed to be like the Rorschach blot speech, you know, you see or hear what it is that you hope to see or hear, maybe. Uh, and uh, many people were suggesting that, you know, he got 38 million viewers on television. He's been working all these events. He just did this Google <coughs> event yesterday. He's really trying to get a bigger audience because he knows the Republican uh, political scene is much more interesting to the American public right now. And so he's, he's very much trying to get people's eyes and ears focused on what it is that he's trying to say. So let me stop there and we'll take questions or whatever your I'd like to ask the first is. and then we'll, yeah. then we'll open it up. Um, on the night of the of the State of the Union, uh, immediately afterwards, of course, the, the journalists began weighing in. And it was, you know, just sort of <coughs> survey uh, of, of, I think, just about everybody. Uh, and on the journalism side. I'm not talking about political topics now. I'm talking about journalism. But they all spoke of the speech purely in terms of the political moment. They did not really talk about the ideas of it. They talked about what he was trying to do to, you know, establish himself for the campaign. And it was all done in, the, in terms of a political uh, agenda. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that that was an incorrect way of, of looking at it. But it struck me how how deadening it must, you know, hit on most Americans or many Americans' ears to have the only kind of commentary from journalists, uh, one that basically said, "Oh, this is just business as usual. It's another campaign speech, and you know, um, don't take the ideas seriously. There's nothing in the content of it. There's no sincerity in it. It's just a campaign manipulation." At least that was the subtext of the commentary. And I wonder why, well, one, I wonder if you think that's a fair way to characterize the way journalists 
reacted to it and tend to react in these kinds of situations, and whether you see a cost to that. Well, that's an interesting question because I've covered and written about a lot of State of the Union addresses with my good ex-editor, Joyce Murdoch, who's back there. <laughs> and um, one of the things that is always a, a friction is that reporters who cover the White House beat, we become so familiar with what it is that the President says day after day and what it is that he's proposing in terms of policy and dealing with Congress about that our sense of familiarity is what it puts us to sleep, not necessarily the president, but that's, it's, it's our sense of looking for the new, because that's what we do, news. And then the president knows, and the White House knows, that on the flip side, the American public usually is very embracing and generous to a president for a State of the Union speech as a kickoff of the year, a description of the agenda. And the presidents usually get large audiences. Obviously, they fall off as the years go on, as happened with President Obama. He had 48 million people the first one, and 43 the next, and 38 million just recently. And um, But very generous. And we know this particular speech went on how many days? He talked for you know a long time. He, he was making jokes the next day about were you know people who were had indulged him the hour and fifteen minutes, but people, the American people or audiences are very generous in their time and interest. So your point is, are we we in the press corps, the journalists of Tom, are we really giving a fair shake to the audience that's really truly interested? Exactly. But my argument is that um, the media have become uh, media are now so uh, fractured and. Uh, organized around so many specialty topics that in some ways presidents get uh, much more extensive detailed looks at some of the policy elements because of the range of specialty publications or niche reporting and and you can find that kind of um, in-depth reporting and then the White House organizes a rollout that begins before the speech and then goes on after the speech so I, I'm uh, very much of the mind that you give I give the speech certainly what it's, I think it's worth. And in this particular case, the president was organizing a speech around his campaign in a way knowing that many of the initiatives that he was trying to uh, tout are not going to go through Congress. And he hopes will be there for a second term. And in that way, are very interesting. But there were also things that were crushing disappointments for anybody out there who was looking for something substantive, for instance, on housing. It was such a weak, um, pallid sort of that portion of the speech. And that is that is such a big fundamental part of what um, economically so many uh, homeowners and communities and states are looking for. And it's been a problem for the president. We're also into the third year, so there's this natural inclination to ask, where have you been for the other two? And um, that's not necessarily a harsh assessment because we know what it is that the president has been doing, but we understand that this is a weak, a more weakened situation that he's in. So I, I'm very, I give full defense to the media and the Washington press corps because I think if you wanted to get a deep dive, you could find individual stories and news organizations that told you about the energy policy or the infrastructure ideas or the tax policies, and we're going to see a lot more of it too. We're going to get, we're going to get into it. We're going to get back to the payroll tax. It expires February, the end of February. We're going to get back into that debate. So some of our coverage was also because we know we're going to get back into it. Let me open it up, and I would ask that uh, students get first priority. If you're a student, uh, hold up your hand if you have a question. 
Yes. Am I the only student? Uh, one of the, I was looking at some of the tracking um, through the speech, and the thing that most people seem to like was his talk about the Solomon London, and uh, he yes. mentioned it right at the beginning, and I thought, gosh, this has been dealt with far too briefly, and then he spent must have been 20 minutes wrapping himself in, in Laden's dead body. Um, that was really mm -hmm. popular, and yet the, he didn't engage on the wider foreign <coughs> policy questions that the US today, in Yemen, in Syria, and so on. Uh, do you think that's a strategic choice that's going to continue through the next year with, just to focus on, on the one success and ignore the more complex situation, apart from maybe Iran, because he gets dragged <laughs> on here? It's a terrific question, and I've written some about this. Uh, what, anybody here, why would you guess that the president didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about foreign policy in the speech? I don't think many people really care that much. So it brings up the number one thing, but then getting back to all these other things like the audio, auto industry and the ability to extrapolate that success, right. that's what people care about. Right. What going to be has not fully formulated what he's going to do or in, in, in a way that he can announce to the American public that would have a good reaction. It's an interesting phenomenon because the most popular policy of President Obama, 75% of Americans say they approve of the withdrawal of troops from Iraq. So that is the most popular thing that you can ask across spectrum. And bin Laden was, he got a bump, of, a bump, a very short bump. And interestingly, Gallup <coughs> described where that bump came from and where did it come from? What part of the electorate gave him the most applause? Republicans. So Republicans were very pleased at the, the it, because it mattered to them more, slightly more than among Democrats. And so the White House was not expecting that bump to last and to continue into the campaign or to be a big selling point necessarily. But we were just talking about the president trying to find ways to showcase not just the commander-in-chief role, I'm the head of state, you know, see me as president. In other words, you're going to have to take the job away from me. I have the job, right? And here's what I'm doing. I'm now the most experienced on the international stage of any of the candidates as opposed to, you know, he's trying to convey all these things. But he knows that the popularity of getting bin Laden is not necessarily going to win him more support. In other words, it's kind of uh, already there, baked in the cake. Um, the other thing is exactly what you said, which is that the public is so focused on their kitchen table economic concerns that he's concerned that if he goes too far into that terrain, that it will then bring him back to where he was with health care. You look like you're preoccupied with things that don't matter to me. I want you to talk about me, me, me. What, what are you going to do for me? So that was part of it. And he also wants to be seen as very bold. So he'll keep talking about that as an example of boldness, saving the, we were just talking about saving the auto industry, <coughs> making a bold choice where it could have gone south. Um, <coughs> Uh, so, you know, he'll keep coming back to it. He has to. He feels that it's part. He knows it's uh, it also is a big seller abroad. You know, he's, uh, polls keep showing he's improved the U.S. image abroad compared to President Bush. So, he, you know, he will talk about that as a success, but not as much. Students, yes. Yeah, I was going to ask um, a question regarding his rhetorical style during the State of the yes. Union. So, you saw him bring up a series of complex political issues. For instance, he was referring to the DREAM Act, but he started that um, segment by talking about, you know, we need immigration reform, we need a strong border, I, I put more troops on the border than anyone else, or more feet on the ground than anyone else. And then, you know, below that broad stroke, 
he puts in, he doesn't mention the DREAM Act by name, but he effectively alludes to, you know, content that, that seems like the DREAM Act. Send it to me and I'll sign it. Exactly, you know, let's get hardworking right. students, you know, the American dream that they deserve or something to that effect. And you know, I felt like that was, and you know, there were some other issues in that part of the speech that he structured very similarly. You know, he offered his opponent's argument first, and then he went ahead and sort of put in his arguably contentious uh, piece of legislation. And I'm wondering, you know, that sort of represents the, the critique that some people have of Obama that, you know, he does the this but that, this but that approach. And I'm wondering, you know, to what extent will that be what happens on the campaign trail? Will he sort of delicately balance both sides of the issue and position his, you know, arguably, uh, not radical, but um, bold or muscular positions within the broader sort of fabric of, you know, just common language of immigration reform? Or will he take a more definitive stance when it comes to some of these I guess these, these like foreign policy or domestic policy issues. It's a good question and I think it gets to the heart of some of the points in the speech in which you, you just described he was trying to draw a sharp contrast <clears throat> with his uh, GOP challengers, right? Uh, the, the range of uh, commentary coming from uh, Mitt Romney or Newt Gingrich and, and they believe, the Obama campaign believes it'll be after today or even before today that we're pretty sure it was going to be Mitt Romney and they've been framing the whole campaign around Mitt Romney. So um, a big part of the, the throwing up the straw man is it's sort of a twofer. In one way he knows that parts of his base are upset with him because uh, he has not uh, acted on developing a pathway to citizenship during the first term. That didn't happen and it seemed to be sitting sort of on a, on a shelf and he knows that Hispanics who voted for him in 2008 are disappointed that this hasn't come up. Not monolithic, they're not all monolithic about this being their pre, you know, preeminent issue, but they're, they certainly have expressed their discontent. And he has been saying, you know, the, we have to take this in steps and the first thing that we're doing is very much about border security and that is definitely for the uh, more independent middle, conservative, whatever you want to say it, that that is a very strong concern, especially at the border. So he's focused on that, and then he's trying to throw up the Romney, because Romney has said he would veto the DREAM Act, and he knew that that was something he had to mention. But you could tell he went, you know, that was just another one of those issues where he got to it, he had to say something about it, and then he moved off of it. So your question is, is he going to keep doing it? You bet. You bet. So he'll, he'll, he'll create, if he can, he'll, he'll amplify the differences that he wants people to see between the democratic values, he calls them, the values, and what it is that the Republicans are offering. And, and we saw in the speech he talked about housing because uh, Romney has said that he would not have um, offered support, uh, he said this in Nevada, he would not have offered any kind of federal support to homeowners. He would have let, let the overhang of housing wash out of the economy. Uh, he said he, Romney said he wouldn't have saved the auto industry, even though his dad was the governor of Michigan. Uh, and he has said he would have vetoed the DREAM Act. So any of those items, the president wants to deflect the attention from you know, what he hasn't done to what it is that Republicans would or wouldn't do. So I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Uh, students, 
You student? Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned you've covered a lot of presidents. I'm trying to get a feel for how this one is different from the others, both good and bad. For example, you said he's a very slow learner. I mean, can you back that up? Well, um, <coughs> President Obama is a, well, let me back up and say, in, in my experience covering White Houses, uh, it is a, the institution in our government that is very much colored by the personality of one human being. And the White House is usually organized around that person's um, personality, their, obviously their vision, et cetera. But I just decided after watching White Houses for a while now uh, that you would think that they would organize themselves around the voids, the weaknesses in a president, and try to patch that up and strengthen it. And in fact, they get organized around, in some ways, um, not not making the president stronger, but in some ways enlarging some of those weaknesses. So President Obama is a very cerebral sort of person who uh, likes the ideas more than the the concepts in some ways more than the visual, visceral emotions of governing. He's uh, very confident. He's incredibly self-confident sometimes to a fault in his own ideas about how things should proceed or what would be the right. Uh, and he prides himself <coughs> on that. Um, and so when I say he's been a slow learner, it's it's like he he's he had no executive experience and was really slow to figure out what he needed to do to get organized to be a better manager. He still hasn't quite figured it out because his White House organization, his team, very much reflects him and his personality, what he likes, the comfort of people he knows as opposed to the kind of people who walk in and tell him you're wrong or they're not people he's known a really long time. Um, and then he had many members of his party tell him, you know, even though he'd been in the Senate for a very short amount of time and came from the legislative branch, much more seasoned legislators than he told him, look, this is the way it's going to go with Republicans. He was absolutely stunned after the election in a way that maybe he shouldn't have been, that Republicans so could, would so quickly organize around combating his ideas. He thought that they would suffer politically by doing that. I know I interviewed Mitch McConnell and John Boehner one year into Obama's <coughs> administration, and they were talking then about how they had figured out they were going to just try to inch by inch climb up out of what had happened in 2008, and the best way they saw to do it was not to make it personal to combat President Obama, but about his ideas, his agenda, his policies, and that they were going to work every day, because they argued that American people are not going to see a contrast if we don't do that. And it took the president a long time to recognize that they were not going to be punished, that their base of support was going to reward them for doing that. And he was very slow, in my opinion, to pick up on that. So those, those are a few <coughs> examples. Obviously, health care was something that he had not recognized in the communication technique all the way along, that if you don't describe what you're doing and have a good answer to explain what it is you're doing, that the Republicans were going to come in and, and describe it for people. And by the time they were finished, Republicans had helped uh, create, through communications and marketing, a very negative view of what the health care reform uh, act, the, the uh, Affordability Act, actually contained. So, Do you fault any one particular person in the administration, aside from Obama himself, for the failure to communicate about the the health bill? Um, I find, I really think that a lot of it goes back to President Obama because uh, 
I think he did get very good advice in the beginning. I think that he got a range of good advice uh, on, on particular topics, and he decided to go certain directions himself. There are other elements that we know his <coughs> economic team in the beginning was just an unholy mess. Um, and, uh, and he fancies himself someone, and this may come from his earlier experiences, that someone who can pull good ideas out of a, a very dysfunctional team. He thinks that he can, he can, um, you know, he can work the room and get the best ideas, uh, but he's, uh, you know, someone who can extract, but he's a really not a terrific <coughs> manager. Uh, he just hasn't had a lot of experience doing it. And things were moving and happening so fast in the beginning of administration. I, I was talking to a Democratic, a very seasoned Democratic uh, political um, advisor, operative in Washington, and he said if we lose in November, people are going to look back and write that we lost it in the first 16 weeks of Obama's presidency, that everything, the die was cast then, because things were happening so rapidly and running away so fast in some ways that everything was there, the stimulus, the TARP, the meltdown, the money going out, the beginning of health care, that President Obama had had this great surge of uh, confidence coming out of his election and he <coughs> he just thought that that would hold him up for longer than it, than it eventually did. Uh, well, in foreign policy, I would say that Obama has Baraka, excuse the pun. He has what? Baraka. Oh. This extremely risky operation at Abbottabad, uh, and now we know from Biden's revelations in the New York Times today, most people were against going ahead with it at that moment. And uh, <coughs> this operation contrasts vividly with Jimmy Carter's hostage rescue operation in Iran, which is a mess. And there's Libya. All this leading from behind obscures the fact that this Libyan operation would not have happened without American participation. Impossible. Then we have Iraq. You brought all, as you mentioned, you brought all the troops out of Iraq from this useless war. I think, uh, I don't know whether he's got any bump on Libya, uh, but I think if, if this continues and other successes uh, go forward, it's going to count in the election campaign. I'm still pessimistic about his chances. I wrote a story about this question about would he get any benefit out of uh, Libya. And the, the, the smart people that I interviewed said that they expected that he would not. And, and I'm talking about domestically, not necessarily abroad. So it's interesting that um, the president understands that it's not necessarily going to be the thing he's rewarded for now, but that if, if, if it lays you know, down some markers for his governance in a second term, and he hopes all of these things will all fit together. Um, and it doesn't mean that he's not going to talk about them, but uh, I do think it will give him, let's say, if all of us can picture President Obama and, and a Republican nominee debating, the guy with the experience is going to have, uh, an, he'll have an interesting series of debates when they get to the discussion of foreign policy. And, you know, I think there's every reason to imagine that he would shine in that kind of context because he certainly knows uh, the issues firsthand in a way that will make the challenger in some ways, I think, uh, uh, have to, you know, <coughs> raise their game, I think, a little bit. 
it. So it's, a, it's an interesting point, and I think we're just going to have to watch and see how it goes. Is, is there much thinking in the Obama camp that if, if they are um, competing with, well, whoever they're competing with, right. that those that that competition is going to be purely based on criticism of Barack Obama's performance, or is there going to be a program that will be proposed by the Republican candidate that will be available to be scrutinized, to be compared, for instance, with what Obama would do? I mean, do they expect that the Republican nominee will be forced to put something on the table to say, this is what I would do? I've, uh, their anticipation is yes. But so far, what Republicans have been doing to, tr to try to challenge uh, President Obama on uh, international policy has been, um, I would say, just in general, what he hasn't done, or what he failed, or what he was slow to do, or... Well, I mean, I'm getting, for, for, for instance, this whole bunch of pledges that these candidates signed um, early, in the, <coughs> early in the primary season about abortion and about various and sundry other things. Are those, do those constitute a platform that, are, that is going to be uh, made part of the Republican you know, uh, election pitch, or is that going to be sort of buried deep in the... Uh, well, my experience about the, the platform is that it, it lives and breathes there, and then nobody pays attention to it, and we, and we all write about it when we get to the convention, but it has much more to do with the nominee and the rhetoric and the discussion during the during the actual campaign as opposed to actually the written platform. Maybe on social issues. Well, I mean, for instance, one of the things is uh, Middle East repeal, repealing Obamacare. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, abortion amendment to the Constitution. Um, yes. I mean, things, I mean, there's right. a list of things. Well, remember we were talking earlier about how the Supreme Court is going to tackle, just to use the mm -hmm. health care, the Supreme Court is going to tackle that with a, uh, a ruling probably by June. So in the middle of the election, we're going to have this really interesting situation which the Supreme Court is going to weigh and render a verdict about whether the mandate is constitutional on a federal level or not. So we're going to have the introduction from you know, external forces into the debate things that they're going to end up talking about. And that could be true, very well true on the international stage. You would imagine that it would, for sure. Um, uh, so some of the, uh, you know so some of the pledges for sure like for instance Republicans are already opposed to President Obama's eagerness to cut defense spending and they're they're already outlining um, arguments that this is making the United States less safe the security etc so there are certain things you can see they're already laid down that whoever it is who's the nominee is going to heed and I think the answer to your question that will there be uh, substantial policy. I think the nominee who wants to contrast a, an incumbent president is going to be compelled to do that, I would argue, would be compelled to come up with set policy. Yes. Uh, excuse me that you say that, but I absolutely agree with you, that communication has been a big problem in the first couple months. Uh, impossible. You have Geithner talking about liquidity to people who are losing their jobs. I mean, that was what a terrible spokesman and what a terrible. I know what he was doing, but that's not the way right. to talk to the public about right. liquidity. Right. Uh, and how could you, who could have been there to do that? Who would be a better spokesman? Well, um, the communications team that came in with President Obama came with him from the campaign. 
So oftentimes I've observed that in the early stages of a White House, you bring in people you're very used to and comforted by from the campaign. And they're not necessarily <coughs> always the best to be with you in governance. But uh, I don't know any incoming president who says, all right, thanks for the job that you just did for me in the campaign, and you're all fired and I'm bringing in all these old Washington hands. Because you remember President Obama was saying, I'm going to fix Washington. We're going to fix the way it works. We're not going to do things the old way. I'm going to bring in new people um, from, the, from outside Washington, my campaign team. So some of it was kind of the wrong people in the wrong place. Some of it was the, the over events overtaking them. Tim Geithner is indeed one of the world's most challenged public communicators about simple or complex ideas. Um, but as you can remember, uh, the discussion about AIG bonuses, right. that was also not just communication, but advice that was that given was to terrible. the president. And the president um, obviously took that advice uh, with his economic team, including some figures that you all know and love here in, uh, in Cambridge. Um, uh, so it's a, it was a mix of things that could have been thought through. You know, in, this is a very, not a topic that everybody just loves to talk about, but transitions to governing. President Obama had one of the best transitions. He planned, his team planned, they did extensive work. President George W. Bush, to his great credit, did an amazing amount of transition planning for the incoming team, was incredibly generous about information, briefing, making stuff available to both McCain and Obama. Uh, McCain had a kind of an unusual idea that it was sort of a jinx to get going thinking about governing, and so he was not as active. He, you know, his, his team actually, you know, got organized, but almost to, to McCain's um, frustration in some ways. And then, uh, and, you know, all of that good planning, it doesn't necessarily make you what better prepared or doesn't make you make the right decisions coming in. But you have to admit there was an unusual, complex set of circumstances handed to the president in the first, yeah. First so um, our fellow, fellow Ron Suskin has yes. um, raised a lot of the same issues you yes. have uh, that answer, I think, a lot of questions about how the White House is run, that his lack of experience in over his depths and so, so on. But one of the things that still puzzles me is, and, and it must be ingrained in his personality, so maybe you can answer it, but his unwillingness to get his nails dirty in Congress, to his unwillingness to meet and, and you know schmooze with members of both sides. So it took him two and a half years to meet with McConnell. Um, and people forget that George W. Bush had Teddy Kennedy in the White House within months to watch a film about his brother. Um, and before th things went, you know, sour, uh, they they did no child left behind together. Mm -hmm. And there's and what is it about his personality? You think that, or, or have you seen it evolve at all um, on that? You know, it's interesting. When I first started covering the Senate, and, and Obama had just been inaugurated in February, there was a sit-down meeting, uh, probably this size, with Harry Reid. Um, and I was, you know, we were all going around the table. Nina's been to these, right? It was like the monitor breakfast. And um, I was trying to think of what kind of question to ask Senator Reid. Uh, and I thought I'll ask him about seeing one of his own go to the White House. It had been so long since we'd seen that and ask him what did he think that was going to mean for working together and all that. And I was so, such a Susie Cream Cheese at the time. I thought he would be like all excited about his colleague Barack Obama, right? And uh, he, he couldn't have been more 
faint praise. He was like, oh yeah, it's gonna be interesting, it'll be good, he's a good communicator. And he acted so begrudging about the, you know, there was no cheetah flips and yippee yippee. And then his face lighted up and then he said, you know who I really, really count on, who I talk to every day who's so helpful when I need something and we're trying to get, you know, Bill, this and that and the other thing. And he says, Joe. Biden. So I got the message right then. It's about relationships. Here was a, it's like high school. The Senate was like high school. They all thought that Barack Obama had come in there and been there for two minutes and was the star rising and thought he was just too good for them. Right? He's on the cover of everything. He's you know, and they all look at themselves every day and think I should be president. Right? So there was a certain amount of resentment and then a certain amount of concern because he had very little experience. And then it's his personality. So one of the things you saw in this debt ceiling uh, fight, and it is, it's, and, and maybe if I, if Ron were here, he could explain better. But, uh, and it's because it perplexes me. Members say that they don't trust Barack Obama after they talked, and they don't trust him. They trust Joe Biden. It's the relationship. They think he's good for his word. He's not going to stick it to them after he walks out of the room or whatever. So there's a lack of trust, and then there's also Obama's personality, and this is a big part of it. So we've all seen presidents, we know about presidents. Barack Obama can fill football stadiums full of people and make every one of them feel warm and cared for. And if he were in the room right now and he was just talking to one of us, he is the chilliest popsicle that you ever gonna meet. He's a very self-contained, restrained person and he doesn't like just put it on. And President Bush, however much we saw the electorate turn against him, if you met him in person, he's the warmest guy, he's very down to earth, easy to talk to, very, very warm and much, very much the politician. So there's something about Obama's personality, he's still the professor, he's a little bit restrained. He, did, it, did anybody remember, there's two things stick in my, in my mind just recently and, and reporters were remarking on this. He loves ideas, but the people, it's the people he is challenged by and it is, it is an unusual thing. He gave this a Google thing yesterday, and it, uh, it was a chance for him to take questions from supposedly real people, right? And there was a videotape question from a Boston gentleman who said, I'm a homeless vet, and here's my question. And the question was pre-taped, so it wasn't like they could have an actual conversation, but if any of you remember it, the beginning was, I'm a homeless veteran, da 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 da, da and then he asked this question about why are we spending money in Pakistan? The president, <coughs> not for the first time, hears, you know, homeless, veteran, Boston, you know, and then he hears Pakistan, and then he gives him the 20-minute speech about, I'm exaggerating, but about Pakistan, his policy in Pakistan, instead of stopping and saying, wait a minute, what's your name? Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. I, I'm crushed to think of you, you know, homeless. I want you to, you know, I want to, I, I know this was videotaped, but I want us to figure out who this was, and we're going to get with you, figure out, because he has this whole range of policies to put veterans to work. This happened last summer too. There was a woman who drove, he did a, his bus tour through the middle, Midwest. There was a woman who stood up and said, Mr. President, I drove all night in my truck um, from, and she named this town, and she said, I slept in my truck last night. Um, I have cancer and I wanna ask you a question about healthcare, da da da. Did he stop and say, oh my gosh, tell me your name, how are you doing? You know, um, thank you so much for coming. You know, how are you feeling or whatever? He went into his 10-minute thing on healthcare. It's like talk about healthcare. He never addressed her. She was standing right in front of him. So there's a chip missing in him. I don't know what it is. What about the song? 
the Al Green song. That was great. <laughs> well, no, he's, I mean, Mitt Romney doesn't sing great and President Obama sings great. What does this mean? I don't know. It's weird. What, what has happened I, to I our election it, cycle? I, he was, I, he I, reached a lot of, I, I loved it. In my class this morning, I asked about that every single one of them, it seemed. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because, my gosh, it was like the Kardashian wedding. We all saw it again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it was great, wasn't it? Well, you're yeah. really you don't, you don't think them. it matters at all. I do not think in this election that anyone is going to vote on how President Obama said. <laughs> but, but it's a matter of, of how he sings. It makes him but that he sings, that he oh, yes. had that moment, sure. which is which goes in sure. the face of what you're just talking about. No, 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 no. He was standing in front of the Apollo Theater um, fundraising. It was a, a, a you know, low-dollar fundraiser. It was a group of people who love him, and he felt very warm in that room, and he was charming. And he was, and he's obviously very talented. I, all I'm saying is he can be all these things. I'm just saying, I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm just saying there are days when he just won't. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like, is it he's holstering his energy? He's holding it back? You know, his staff builds in time in his day, you know, so he can kind of take breaks and regroup and think through. He's a big thinker. And I'm not faulting it. It's just that I, I covered Bill Clinton and I covered George W. Bush. and. They're all different. They're all, you know, Bill Clinton was always on, still is. You see him everywhere, right? You know, he would try to charm the two people in the elevator or the 2,000 people, you know, out in the hall, right? You know, he just, he got his energy that way. And Obama, he feels that his energy leaves him. So it's just an interesting. Well, if it really does boil down to Romney and Obama, how effective do you think Romney will be? How did, you know, will Obama still be able to take him apart because of his Romney's all this? There's no core. Right. You know. Well, and here's the thing. The, the Republican Party seems to have concerns about the question you just asked. So it's unknown, right? But have we seen Mitt Romney improve as a candidate? The answer is yes. I know people have criticized him because he's been running, effectively running for a long period of time, but not running and, you know, debating in, in the scrap every day. Um, so do you really think he's improved, or do you really think he's just put a ton of money out there? Well, do I, think, I, I think he's improved as a candidate. He I really think he did. has improved. Yeah, okay. I think you have to give him credit for taking Gingrich apart in Florida, because he went into Florida a week ago pretty far behind. Do you know what the numbers were? It, it, it was he was behind, and now he's what, 20, 20 points ahead or something. Alex, there was a, not to digress, but there was a Baba. I think it was NPR where they explained the difference that Florida is really eleven media points, and he did a pumped a ton of money. Oh, no, no, I don't. I don't into those eleven media points. I'm not saying there wasn't plenty. That really but it was the, the debate. The debates are really what are sending the polls swinging. Yeah. It's always it's the debates because what, there's so much money. <coughs> Gingrich is throwing money in there too, and there's so much money. There's so much stuff going on. But the debates are what I I think Alex would probably agree are, are the breakout moments that are sending the polls swinging in either direction. Well, we, got, we got one more yeah. question over here before we. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you say Romney comes at voters with the 59 point solution instead of listening to what they're saying. But I want to ask you, it's sort of related to this, but 
about Obama's relationship with the press and how you see that. Ah. I just remember how the, that there was an article in Rolling Stone, July 2008, about how he was so protected. Yes. Was, you know, he had very limited. Yes. Then it seemed like the press was madly in love with Obama for quite a long time. And then there was this period where he actually tried to marginalize. Well, he actually he took Fox News and kind of was like, we should just throw them out. Yeah. And that seemed to pass over. And I was just wondering. It has everything settled into a sort of... Gingrich says the elite media is completely apologizing for Obama and protecting him, right? There's been a huge shift. <laughs> sh 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 well, that's what Republicans love to say. And, and of course, there is nothing that Newt Gingrich says that gets his crowd applauding more than mm -hmm. to go after the media. For sure. um, if, if anybody is going to be working with Ron Susskind, I'm sure he'll tell you what a pleasure it was to work with the um, White House <laughs> communications <laughs> machine. Um, but President Obama actually had a very disciplined thought concept about dealing with the media even before he uh, came into office. And I remember Democrats telling me that they had so admired what President Bush was able to do with the media, the discipline, the message discipline, and the control, message control. So uh, they had said that they had hoped to emulate that if the Democrats could take the White House again and really uh, deal with the way the media had uh, fractured into many splintered publications or outlets and, and really work with that. Um, obviously, President Obama thought in his campaign that he had discovered something very useful about the new media and that he wanted to bring that into governing, and he certainly has done that, um, probably to if he so-so uh, reactions in terms of governance. But they're very controlling, they're very disciplined, they're um, hostile to the media, I would say. Uh, I would say, I would argue beyond the point of it necessarily being useful to the boss or his agenda at this point. Uh, but I, in some ways, I imagine that that kind of dealing, the White House dealings with the press court may be here to stay regardless of party, because there's this sense that um, the media are now so uh, widely dispersed the Obama administration feels very strongly that there is no such thing as media in the middle. They believe very strongly that the media are on one side of the dividing line or the other. And they are eager to play um, their stakes with those who will, are willing to play along their ground rules. And I, I just, I myself think that's wrong. I don't think that that's the right way to look at the media, but that's the way they see it. And they're very um, harsh. Before we close, if you were putting Gingrich and Romney on the same scale as Obama, Clinton, and George W. Bush in terms of personality, warmth, and a kind of a, a personality type, where would you plug Gingrich and Romney into that continuum? Oh my gosh. Romney is not someone I know very well at all, so it would be hard for me to say. I know from my colleagues who are with him, traveling with him every day, that He's a challenging person to know, but he does have this kind of. <laughs> he's a challenging. He's person. a challenging person to know because um, he is not. Uh, he doesn't let his guard down very much. He's a guarded sort of a, a person. Um, but they, there's, they're sort of always telling me that it's the unguarded moments with Romney where he's just sort of letting it all hang out uh, to the extent that he does that is when he gets into trouble. So that's why his team starts to make, wants Romney to be very much on script. And you know, he hired a new team, and he's got debate coaches and all that. 
But when I say he improved, he improved at the debate. Nobody can make you come up with the, you know, the right thing to say at the right moment, and he really has improved. Gingrich, I covered, uh, and he's he is a funny, interesting guy. Actually, the media, Nina, you know, right? I mean, he's an interesting guy to cover. He's very, he loves talking to the media as much as he wants to smash us over the head and use us as, you know, foils. He he likes and enjoys the media, and he's very fun to talk to. Very fun to talk to, especially if you're talking about him. His problem is <laughs> just his peers. Yes, <laughs> yes. his peers like Yeah, him. exactly. Um, and 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 then President Obama is a fascinating person. I still feel like I'm getting to know him, watching him through various iterations. And uh, uh, but he is also a very guarded person. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you no very much.